0: Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Precision in language is key when writing anything, but especially in journalism. You only get so many words to get it right. So, what does the term classical mean in relation to film? Can we say that film, as a comparatively young art form, even has a classical mode? And why do certain filmmakers, like James Gray, seem to attract the term? To get a better sense of what classical means, I was joined by
1: Michael Koresky, editorial director at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.
2: And Kent Jones, director of the New York Film Festival, writer, filmmaker.
0: Here's the conversation. So Michael wrote this wonderful short article and then an interview with James Gray talking about Lost City of Z. And in it, you use a certain word, which is classical. And I thought the term gets thrown around a lot. There are a lot of sort of big themes that run through Lost City of Z. It's sort of the first word that comes to my mind after having seen it is a very classical narrative because what were some of the first films that ever made they were travelogues they were these point and shoot the camera see what you know what's going on in india on on in the street in india show people what's happening in brighton these looks of faraway places and you get to explore and this is a film about an explorer so maybe we could talk about the film for a bit and appreciate how really good it is and then also and then eventually get into what the word classical means.
1: Well, I actually went back and looked at the article today to see if I did use that word, <laughs> that dirty word. And I, yeah, I realized that I had, I, I called him a, a classicist. And I think any good, critic or as anyone who wants to be a good critic should probably question everything that they write themselves. Go Hot back and look at free it. Free tip. Because I've been thinking about that that word a lot because I've seen it thrown around a lot in the past few years especially. And I'm wondering exactly what it means. Like obviously it's it, it probably has no real meaning. Um <laughs> like but we can assign one today. Them? Maybe I don't know. Um I think that it's tempting because it's like all overused critical terms, it's kind of, it's reductive, right? right? And if you look back at actual classical Hollywood filmmaking, which is w- how I was using the term, mm-hmm. there's no one uniform style. And right. the, the movies that we talk about as being the great films are usually not necessarily classical because there's just no. whatever that means. So There's so much going on. So, I, I, um, so though I use the word, I also am um, starting to be kind of uh, resistant to it. But I do think it's inter- interesting that it's thrown around so much and, and it's fascinating to look and see why and what people are responding to. I think it's happening because, you know, Hollywood doesn't really exist anymore as it once did. We can't really we can't really talk about the Hollywood mode of production the way we once did. It's not the same. Right. It's not the same structure. It's not the same industry. It's not the same infrastructure.
0: The star system is very similar, though.
1: Um Would you- No. No, because
0: I mean, I'm thinking so somebody advanced this argument online and I think it's sort of true, where it's like the Marvel Disney machine, right? You know, those actors are signed you know, the the release dates of these properties are announced before they have a director, before they have a cast. Unless of course they're from these other films that they're going to you know, that are setting up this thing and they're going to be plugged in.
1: I feel like it I feel like that's a form of product placement. More than it is like a, even a remnant of a, of, a, of a of the star system. Okay, I feel like that fell apart quite a while ago. I think that people inherently wish that it were still around because it's mm-hmm. very easy to plug things in. But when I say that the you know this the system no longer exists as it does, I, I say that to to express that the term classical is now employed to talk about something that's more of a mannerism or a style right. than it is like an a, an actual fact of production. Right. So if we talk about James Gray films, or *Lost City of Z* in particular, as classical, we're probably just responding to the fact that he's making character-driven mm. films that care about beauty and structure to right. a certain extent. And and I know the term beauty is very loaded, but in the sense that everything that you're seeing visually is advancing a certain idea of the film, a certain idea of character, and a certain idea of uh, to to relate information in a very clear way i just were watching the yards again Mm -hmm. james gray's the yards from 2000 and i was just so struck by how incredibly coherent clear and clarifying the whole thing (laughs) is right like it's just the narrative momentum is so tied into every visual choice and performance of all of his films right yeah and i think that i think that's obviously clear in Mm -hmm. last city of z2 and i think that because it's a term that we're using classicism is a term we're using more now that everyone's sort of tagging it to Lost City as a way of evaluating it. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, what he's doing is really just, he's he's creating an emotionally coherent film and it's it's um, you feel like it's a film, not a product. And that's very right, exciting.
0: Right, right. I feel like what we're edging towards relates to the feature you wrote about the marginalization of cinema. And...
2: I think that the term classicism is very relative when you're talking about, depending on the art form that you're talking about, Hmm. cinema is such a young art form it is barely a hundred you know it's just a little bit over a hundred years old which is nothing in comparison to theater or poetry um or music and i think andre bazan wrote this thing where he said cinema caught up with the other art forms and it already has a classicism i think that he was just wrong and
0: he he could be wrong. It's yeah,
2: okay. Sure, of course. <laughs> you know, and I mean, you know, I understand what he meant, mm-hmm. but you know, I just think that you know he's he's he was incorrect because it's just you know just by virtue of the 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 age of the art form. But having said that, when we say classicism, we're talking about something very specific in relation to cinema post French New Wave. I guess you know just to throw a dart at the at the mm-hmm. board. And particularly post-1980s slash rock video era. That's when things really changed. Um, And things became very kind of impressionistic. And you could, you know, do a spray of shots that, you know, just kind of like edit them together intuitively to create a sort of like visual impression. And then, you know, screw around with the continuity so that once people, once it became clear through rock videos that people didn't care about that kind of continuity that had been mm-hmm. the basis of film, then things, you know, kind of opened up. So let's yeah. say that on the one hand, if you have somebody like Chapang Weerasethakul or Pedro Costa, that's not classical filmmaking. You know, uh, you know it's something mm-hmm. else. You know, it's a kind of immersive, hypnotic filmmaking. Or, you know, on the other hand, if you have somebody like Olivier Assayas, that's, again, not classical filmmaking, you know, or Arnaud Despochins, not classical filmmaking. You know, there's no... T- it's almost like in Depochan's films, you rarely see the same setup repeated twice. Mm-hmm. Same thing with Paul Thomas Anderson to a certain extent. With James Gray, I feel like... the Camera placement in the sense of distance is very, very precise. That's something that goes to Alf, you know Alfred Hitchcock. Spent a lot of time talking about that, the emotion and, you know in relation to the distance and the size of things in the frame. Mm-hmm. I would really take issue, though, with the idea that his films, and this one in particular, are classical narratives. This one looks like a classical narrative because it's about an explorer. But the interesting thing about the movie is that... <laughs> It's about this guy. He makes this long journey. He's in the middle of the Amazon. He sees something and then, boom, he's back in England. Yes. And then, you know, he has a conversation with his wife. He gets the money together to do another exploration. He's back in the Amazon and then, boom, he's back in England again. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, he goes back one more time. So it's really not classical at all. And I know that when James was putting the movie together, one of the films that inspired him from a structural standpoint, was The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. Oh, yes. Uh, which is also not a classical narrative and a very, very no. unusual film that remains, that gets more unusual as the years go by. Yeah. And so the, to me, Lost City of Z, you feel like you're going to watch Apocalypse now, and then suddenly you're not. And what you're really watching is a movie about a guy who's in pursuit of the sublime. Mm hmm. And he just keeps going back, looking yeah. for it again and again and again. And it probably has nothing to do with the real guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we're very little.
1: Right. He, he purposely took out a lot of the things that yes. were, you know, quote unquote, true about Percy Fawcett. Yes. Um, because he really, because as any great script should be, it really was focused on the things that make this character this character. Yeah. Right. Um, Which is I, why all
2: that stuff that's written about, you know, the fact that Percy Fawcett was a racist, racist. and eugenicist
1: and all that stuff doesn't really, it's, it's not germane to what he was doing. And the fact right. that James Gray elides those things says a lot about the kinds of films that James Gray wants to make right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. they're not trendy at all. He has no interest in trends. Yeah. Yeah. He makes films that are true to their own spirit and true to this idea of transcendence. Actually, and mm-hmm. I, I see. That in all of his films, yeah. it's really not just here. This this one maybe literalizes that a bit. I mean, the the last ten minutes, which we will not spoil on this podcast, our oh yeah. so uh, yeah. <laughs> the film does actually achieve the sublime, and that is um, something that maybe people throw around a lot, but movies do not achieve that no. as well as this movie does. Yeah, and I think that um, for a film to maintain that, you do have to kind of thwart audience expectations time and again, which is interesting. Um, as you were saying about the structure, there's something uh, stop-start. There's something that's, that's that's between you and that character. Even though this, ha- even though the film is uh, wedded to his uh, his perspective and it's mm-hmm. a film about perspective, there's something that's keeping you out of understanding what his obsessions and desperations and desires really are. Right. You have to do that work as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is a film about constrictive uh, Edwardian England. This is not a film about going into the jungle. The jungle is. Um, You know, the jungle is a metaphor. The jungle could be anything.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I think so many films now are based on a true story. And if you read the reviews of these films, they're not really evaluating the filmmaking necessarily. They're fact checking. They're saying, well, actually, this person did this and this person did that. And therefore, making them do this is interesting. and And it's like, yeah, that's not I feel like the scripts are calibrated to have that reaction. And then when they're filmed by whoever they're not necessarily interjecting as much for me the structure was i felt very emotional where it's like you say you don't he's not like constantly talking about like oh god i have to get back to the jungle like he never he never says anything about like that but there's a moment where uh he's (laughs) it's during world war one in the middle of the trenches he's visited Mm. by this russian fortune teller And you completely understand his obsession. Yeah. And it's like this transcendent moment. And, and again, it's like the war scenes, they're completely different from any of the jungle scenes. I mean, ob- for ob- not just simply because they look different, but they have this completely different feel. But it still fits within the realm of the film. It, it's, just, it's just spectacular that, kind of filmmaking.
1: That, the fortune teller scene is a really good example of something that is just in there mm-hmm. so you can... Visually understand something I mean it's there as a plot element but there aren't a lot of scenes where he expresses this desire and then Mm -hmm. that scene happens and it's the shortest scene but everything crystallizes you realize that this is about obsession but Mm -hmm. but a lot of other scripts would underline that and say that over and over Mm -hmm. and over again
2: he does actually say that he wants to get back to the jungle he says it when he's on when he's in the hospital after he's had
1: the when chlorine, he's, he's attack but that's attacking. after but that's oh, after afterwards we've yes, yes, been yes, let yes, in yes. right that's true yeah, yeah, yeah i think you do get more an in in acute sense of that obsession the, the, the later and later right. the film goes yes. but for the most part it is a very matter of fact laying out of his yes. experiences
2: mm-hmm. yeah i mean one thing that i think is really not remarked on enough maybe it is and i just don't know about it but you know in, in his work and very present in this movie is how much attention he pays to the presence of women, yeah, and the women you know and and how women are slated and the damage that's done to them as they're slated, you know I mean in the yards, which you just brought up, Michael, you know that character is just shattering, and so is the Ava Mendez character in We on the Night. So, uh, the character of Char- played by Charlize Theron, by the way, you know, in the
1: yards, and but, but also uh, Faye Dunaway and Ellen Burstyn, sure, in the yards. Yes. I mean, that those are remarkable performances, actually. They're
2: incredible mm-hmm. performances, but I think that it's the the way that the young women are exploited and damaged in in ways that. You know, in other movies, are often taken for granted. He always pays special attention to, and then in Two Lovers, it becomes even more complicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think um, what's
1: interesting about the Yards is that um, because they're not the love interest, they're not taking the role of lo- love interest. Dunaway yes, and Burston yes, are yeah. uh, examples of those characters who have already gone through that experience of comp- of being left out of 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 the of their destinies yeah. or fates or whatever they want to be they're are they've already been sidelined and they're already in this shadowy realm to a certain extent yeah. but yeah i think you're right especially with the sienna miller character in the lost yeah. city of z which is actually a really wonderful performance mm-hmm. she does a lot with, with, a, with a little and i don't i don't mean that yeah. she's not given a lot but like any good script she's given just enough to mm-hmm. say and you get that character and there's a real yearning and desire on her part for her version of transcendence and her version of the sublime, it might be different from what his is, mm. but her pursuits are never honored in the way. Well, they are. Yeah, they
2: are. He gives them lip service during the National Geographic Society meeting. One of my favorite moments right. of the film. You know, and, but then when it comes right down to it and she's like, you know, ready to go to the Amazon and she's just like unheard, you know, impossible. No right. way, you know, you'd never be able to survive it. And that's actually one of the most emotional scenes in the movie, I think. Yeah. In a very emotional movie.
0: Totally, yeah. It's it's a long film, but there's nothing superfluous yeah. in it. Like, it's almost journalistic in how it's... Or poetic, maybe, poetry in the sense that poetry is all about the economy of language. It's very precise, and that that scene in particular It's just like... Yeah. He, he fits a lot of centuries, maybe, mm-hmm. eons of, you know, sort of female uh, disenchantment and the refusal to allow women into this space. And, like, I mean, obviously... he's essentially refusing her the sublime right yeah and you feel like the pain of that but again it's not like underlying he's refusing
2: her access to the sublime yeah yeah Yeah. that's right and it's very I don't know it's also interesting in relation to this discussion that you know I remember when I saw We on the Night I I, I didn't get it and I think back about it now and the reason that I didn't get it is because his films are so out of tune with what everybody else everybody else is doing, mm-hmm. I mean, really, around the world. He is absolutely 100%, you know, sui generous. There's no, so that, you know, it's an adjustment. Now, he certainly, and, and I think it has to do with the fact that he, when people look back retrospectively at works of cinema from the past, they tend to edit out certain things you know Mm -hmm. from the experience to make things more coherent in one way or another
0: well that's what historical narratives do right
2: yeah that's true that's true but it, although i guess in in the case of cinema again since it's such a young art form you're talking about people doing it in a very kind of haphazard oh, very I know. willful it's, way you know that's yeah. more a little bit more unusual well, than other art forms
0: yeah i mean it's it's as you say it's a little more than 100 years of cinema and the idea that you would somehow cut corners and be like these films just never existed until this point it's it's not just sloppy yeah. it's like it's like a very it, it feels like a ideological cudgel sort of you know yeah
2: i mean You know, the way that people talk about Douglas Mm -hmm. Cirque, or maybe still, I don't know, you know, but the way that they used to talk about Douglas Cirque was as if he sort of existed above the film. Right. And so, and then Fassbender was kind of like, you know, and then Todd Haynes were kind of like more, you know, up to date iterations of what they're talking about. And I think that that's not an uncommon thing, and that in the case of. James Gray, you have somebody who really embraces melodrama full throttle. Mm -hmm. He just doesn't, it's as if, you know, there was, you know, he just never has had a problem with it. For most people, it's always problematized, to use another overused word, a little bit. In his case, it just isn't. And so he takes it and he uses it, and in Two Lovers, I think. And in this movie and in The Immigrant, he kind of turns it into something Mm -hmm. that no one else would be able to get to because they're not meeting melodrama, you know, one to one.
1: This is why you don't you never get the sense in his films that there are, um, quote unquote, you know, flourishes. Mm -hmm. There are no um, there are moments like which interests me if you look at The Immigrant which is a beautiful film but and also for the most part a a, a straightforward film that one might call classical mm. but there's this whole sequence that is very uh, subjective when she f- goes to Brooklyn and she ends up in that her aunt's house it's a very disturbing scene for many reasons but there is there is a flashback mm-hmm. to um, she comes from Poland yeah. correct yeah. to a pogrom and it enters like a strictly a subjective poetic realm but at the same time it doesn't f- feel like, because I know, because that's not how he makes films, it doesn't feel like there's any kind of extraneous style for its own sake or, or mannerism that's mm-hmm. along with it. This is the experience of the character. And I was thinking of that in terms of something like, you know, Man- I don't know, Manelli's Madame Bovary, mm-hmm. which has these amazing moments that are that you would say kind of break away from the quote unquote classical but they're not um, the, the flourishes of an artist trying to stand outside of the art, create something that is somehow a component of the whole that elevates the whole, right? It's part of the whole. You can, so when you talk about a movie like Madame Bovary, you may talk about that dance sequence. You may say, well, that's evidence of Manelli's brilliance because he does these amazing stylistic things, when in fact, it doesn't function, it wouldn't function at all if it wasn't an essential integrated part of the whole and I think that's where James Gray sort of stands out you you watch a lot of filmmakers who do a lot of amazing things with long takes and camera work and even some people who are called classical perhaps but I think what separates those kinds of filmmakers from James Gray is that there's not quite as much focus on for these other filmmakers on the entire thing working together Mm -hmm. and I think that that makes him very rare
0: yeah because again, there's so much in a lot of contemporary films, if they're big budget, if they're quote unquote independent, that word doesn't really mean that much anymore. There's this, there's a, there's a lot of impulse to mash up, right? Where it's like you're taking, so the Captain America Winter Soldier, well, that's like a 70s thriller in certain respects. So you, you're taking that and plugging, you're sort of. Gluing it on to the superhero movie, but it ultimately is just a superhero movie And here and with James Gray It's like the genre is so much more everything feels a lot more integrated and thought out and like cohesive which is why you can go from something like the jungle to the war to end all wars, right and you still feel
2: It's true, you know people speak in relative terms And what they mean is that it's not what's happening now, you know, right. normally yeah. Except that it,
1: it starts to become what is happening now. I mean, I just want to say that if you're
2: talking about Captain America, Winter Soldier, Avengers, Logan, you're talking about commerce. Right. And now, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if we were talking about American cinema, and yes, this does relate to this article that I wrote, you know, the marginalization of cinema. You were talking about blending together those things. Now, you know, I, I, the Avengers, Logan, Captain America, Winter Soldier are here. Lost city of z is here mm-hmm. um in many many ways that we don't even have to have to enumerate right. i think it's clear to everybody yeah and um i think it's great that people are giving james money to make Lost city of z yeah and it's great that you know kenny lonergan got money to make manchester by the sea and jim jarmusch got money to make patterson and you know and amazon <laughs> you know it's just like it's great that they're doing what they're doing, but it is a very different situation, and I mm-hmm. think you know that's something that's that's important to bear in mind, and that also has a bearing on this question of classicism,
0: of course, because it's like you need this is an industrial art form you need resources to make it, and it's uh, what struck me about the jungle, the war scenes, is that they look really good, and not yeah. just because it's like he knows where to put the camera, as you were saying before, but they. Just have a look about them where it's like, somebody spent money on this. Mm
1: -hmm. They were shot on film. And that too. makes a really big difference. And if anyone Mm -hmm. has a chance to see it projected on film, that's very exciting. And I'm not a purist. I am not a fetishist of this. But I saw this movie on DCP and I saw this movie on film. It looks amazing both ways. But there's an incredible texture to the 35 millimeter print of this. And uh, he talked about modeling the jungle scenes after Rousseau and... I got it intellectually when I f- saw it on DCP and I got it emotionally when I saw it on film. Mm-hmm. Um, it was shot that mm. way. I mean, it's really a stunning looking movie. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I, and I mean that in the, you know, the least literal sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause I know that's an overused word, but um, I, 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 it's text texture. It's texture. It, it, he thinks about that on every level. It's the visual, it's the emotional. And I don't know, maybe that's part of what we call classical, but, I, I hope that that would just be what we would call cinema.
2: Yeah, I think that that's the more productive way of talking about it.
1: But it's interesting <laughs> to um, to think about, uh, you know, re- recent films. I was trying to come up with a list of films that where the term has been used. And mm-hmm. I think that people use it a lot with recent Spielberg films, Lincoln and Bridge of Spies mm-hmm. specifically, maybe especially Bridge of Spies. I think Lincoln, which is, I think, an extraordinary movie. I think that, there's actually something borderline radical about the narrative of Lincoln, though it is progressing in a cause and effect, of, you know, a very a satisfying emotional cause and effect way, the way it grapples with history. There's almost something um, so technically precise about it that I find it to be a, a, this bizarrely like dreamlike enriching experience. Bridge of Spies, which I just adored i i I think i adored on a more um uh, slightly more conventional level perhaps but i think it's the way that spielberg's been dealing with character lately Mm -hmm. and acting his actors lately that feels a little different i mean i've he's somebody that i've always loved for various reasons with a few exceptions along the way but there's something about these recent films where he is he's working very in sync with his Greenwriters I think I don't know if, if, I don't know if you have Any insight into that Kent But I, th- I've i been Impressed by the Unspooling of Narrative information In mm-hmm. recent Spielberg films mm-hmm. That I didn't necessarily Get earlier Even when I loved them
2: Well I mean you know Lincoln's written by Tony Kushner Tony Kushner wrote Munich I think that the Unspooling of narrative Information I mean, I mean they, they feel like Two very different movies To me Very, very different Munich, kinds Munich of and movies. Lincoln Yeah yes, Definitely um, And um. I think Lincoln is a is a a better movie. Part of it, you know, I mean th- that that has a lot to do with a lot of things. I think he's someone you know when he first started Spielberg first started making historical narratives. They were less complex mm-hmm. than the ones that he's making now. I like Amistad. I think it's a good movie, but I, 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 I think Lincoln is a much more complicated kind of. I experience. like Amistad too, but it,
1: Amistad does feel kind of like warm up structural. In a way. For Lincoln. I think... Um,
0: well, what is, what is... a, In what respect?
1: Because they're both procedurals.
0: Okay.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, Amistad and Lincoln. That's they're, true. They, they
1: deal with American history in a very specific way. They, yeah. they follow single cases that have major, major historical repercussions. Mm. But they're intentionally limited in that way. They follow mm. a single case where they let that stand in for the whole. In the case of Lincoln, you're also
2: talking about an actor who doesn't just come and you know, play a part. I mean, you know, he brings something much more substantial to any movie that he's in. I think that that includes the writing and the shaping of character. I mean, that's just the way it is with Daniel Day-Lewis. It's just it's it's an all-in kind of experience and a real collaboration. In the case of Bridge of Spies, you have to talk about who wrote it. I mean, it's so it's just like you know. I mean, I know that there's one draft that was written by this guy, but the Coen brothers rewrote it, and boy it feels like it and it's interesting because I remember AI to me is not a very satisfying experience because it feels and I remember I met Stanley Kubrick's widow there was a screening of that documentary about him a life in pictures and she had just seen AI and she was saying well it's you know it feels like two different personalities you know there and it, that's that's part of that experience I feel like with Bridge of Spies, the way that he and the Coen brothers wound up working together feels much more meshed to me. I mean, they feel like they're, and, and Tom Hanks too, you know, it just feels like a, a very perfect kind of collaboration. You could debate about the thing in the train at the end. People seem to wind up with Spielberg fixating on like things that last about 30 you know one second in (laughs) in, in the movies and they wind up saying I didn't really like that scene where he's looking at the you know just like what you didn't like the two second you know cross cut that happens with a lot
1: of people but also I think it's because people people tend to freight Spielberg with a lot of symbolic gestures that he doesn't necessarily do it's Mm -hmm. because he has such a there's so much power to what he shows Mm -hmm. that you can kind of every moment glows in its own way and you can you know, latch on to one thing or the other. And that those moments also often happen at the end. He does, he does get a lot of uh, debate around his endings. Yeah.
2: There are also things, you know, that are, that are sort of like Tom Hanks is sitting at the dinner table and he says, grace, you know, and talks over his daughter, the, the, the you know, sort of like family conflict stuff between Amy Ryan and his daughter and, you know, the clerk, you know, his clerk who's coming to have dinner with them. It gets a little glib, but, that kind of glibness has gotten more and more. It's it's it's. There's less and less of it mm-hmm. in his in his work as the years have gone by. I think.
1: So do you think then the my perception of Spielberg is becoming in a sense, more classical, is really just a perception? Because I do wonder that, because I think it also ties back into this idea I said at the beginning, which is that Hollywood, as we once talked about or knew it, is is kind of no longer, and that the kind of filmmaking Spielberg continues to practice now feels more anomalous, and therefore there seems to be more of an appreciation of him as a classical filmmaker. But, you know, I, I, I think that in his case, it's more, he appears
2: to be more... Of a classicist In relation to everybody around him Just like You know You could say the same thing Of Silence I mean it's just sort of like Movies that Suddenly I mean you know Ten years ago That wouldn't have been the case Now It just seems like You know Because in relation to On the one hand Captain America Winter Soldier In relation to On the other hand La La Land Or Spotlight In a very odd way You know I mean I just I just feel, you know, and then on the other hand, in relation to any of the movies that you see that are made with, like, gimbals and, you know, <laughs> the camera just sort of, like, swinging around and, you know, that are kind of, like, put together in a very impressionistic way. Put together in
0: the edit.
1: Or a lot of Movies are made to be put together in the edit. Yeah. But, but something like Moonlight's a good example of a very good movie that nobody would call classical.
0: Right, because it's right. using... The, I mean, the, the, its references are not coming from Hollywood. They're coming from like Taiwanese New Wave films, from Hong Kong New Wave films. And like, what I find is interesting about Moonlight, and I don't think a lot of people talk about this, is that with third cinema and like, you know, if, you know, Cinema Nova, let's say, the reason why they used radical formal. Aesthetics was because they had radical politics that they wished to express. And they're like, this traditional linear narrative that has been established and propagated by Hollywood is not sufficient to express our point. And I'm not going to say that that is like, you know, Taiwanese films didn't have necessarily super radical politics, but they were using a different film grammar because they were like expressing something different. And so
1: that's part of it. But also, I mean, E- economics are always right. part of that i mean they they don't they also aren't expressing things in a hollywood way because they don't have they don't you know, got the, the cash money to do that yeah. so you have these always has to be a workaround of so course. um this is you know there's always questioning you know politics money what, come, what comes first mm-hmm. if they had the money some of these filmmakers what how what would these films look like and feel like it doesn't matter we don't need to know because what they created is so artistically interesting and valid and political um, but yeah, economics are always kind of part of uh, part of that debate. I mean, it was, it's interesting. And, and Moonlight can also be talked about in that way too. It's a yeah. $1 million budget. Um, you know, it, extraordinary success for various reasons. Um, but Barry Jenkins is a filmmaker who works in that particular way, both because he's influenced by these other more impressionistic art house filmmakers from around the world, but also because he's working with a $1 million budget. 1.5. I mean, Mm -hmm. who knows what what he'll do next I mean, if there's a particular kind of grammar That he might want to try I don't know, it depends, really
2: Yeah, I mean I have a feeling, though That Edward Yang and Ho Shen Had as much money as they wanted I I doubt that they would have, you know Wanted more And I think that they probably made exactly the films That they they wanted to But, you know, that's one thing I, I... But I also think that, you know, um, in the case of Moonlight, it's not so much like the choices about whether or not to move the camera. Uh, To me, what makes the film not classical, quote unquote, is the structure of it. So, you know, I mean, and the structure of it means that you're going to have your penultimate scene in a restaurant where a lot of it has to do with the texture of, the cooking of the meal and the mm-hmm. serving, and the gesture of putting the plate down in, fr- in front of him, and the rhythm of of talking, and so, you know, I think that, but but that's a structural
1: matter, mm-hmm. you know, and that's something that needs to be sure. To it's, another, it's, it's another reason why I film like Steve Jobs is completely non-classical. I mean, th- that it's th- what everything it's doing is built into this structural conceit yeah. that fuels it. Yeah, it's not right. It's not tied to budget necessarily especially in the u.s but it's interesting when um l- larger films seem to or bigger budget films american films are taking on these these stylistic ideas incorporating and yeah because that, nec- that doesn't necessarily come from that don't necessarily come from an artist an american vernacular
0: right because i mean can't you when you were when you were first talking talk about like the influence of music videos well music videos what were those those were taking very avant-garde, initially very cheap and then increasingly expensive, avant-garde experimental filmmakers and letting them into the homes of people in the middle of the country and like exposing them to, sometimes they would quite literally just rip off something like Un Chien let's say. And then other times it was just like taking a radical form for, to tell, you know, to express the music, to express a narrative, maybe refusing narrative. Like, and, and that filmmakers would incorporate that and sort of like muddy the waters i don't think it's necessarily a bad thing but it's like you can i mean you can see it even in television. like there are a lot of shows that use formal techniques that like 10 years ago again would be and Mm. and i'm I'm not talking about prestige tv i'm just talking about like cop shows like detective shows that old people watch uh and love like they could you know like we've uh, film grammar like We've come to an understanding of it where you can incorporate these other more diverse and it's sort of expected. It's almost expected, but then other times it is covering up sloppy filmmaking or filmmaking that is it that should be coherent. Like, let's say, during a chase sequence or a big shootout where you're just sort of cutting between these different perspectives and there's no sense of space and the only thing really tying it together is the understanding that we're in the same place and we're hearing the same noises and therefore this makes sense even though it doesn't
2: well i mean look what happened to john wu when he left hong kong and came to the united states i mean you know it's that's a very simple example mm-hmm. You know, this is a guy who created these action sequences that were, on the one hand, just like, you know, completely chaotic, and on the other hand, absolutely 100% coherent. Uh, I believe when,
0: the term you're looking for is man opera. <laughs> yeah.
2: But when he <laughs> but when he came to the United States, and, you know, first he made Hard Target, and then there was Broken Arrow, but then the first big hit was Face Off, and mm-hmm. the action sequences in that are kind of like everybody else's action sequences, or where they were tending. And so I think that it's, it's a, it's actually at this point, a commercial pressure, mm-hmm. you know, that, mim- that masquerades as visual freedom, right. you know, and it's, a, and it's a commercial pressure that's on lower budget movies too, you know, yeah. I must say. And so I th- I think that that's, you know, the, the, when it happened, by the way, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much I agree about, the avant-garde being the model for rock videos in the first place, aside from, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, David Byrne and Brian Dino actually had Bruce Conner do two, you know, and he made two great films out of, you know, America's Waiting and Mia Culpa, but that's, that's an anomaly. I, I think well, Kenneth no, the Anger... First,
0: the first music video was avant-garde. Like, Video Killed the Radio Star, that is, I think that, I think you could, it's, it's not necessarily you could show it at views from the avant garde and people would stand up and clap, but it's like <laughs> it's 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 not like promotional videos made for music that were shown on like mu pop T V shows before that time. It's using these video effects. It's it's like yeah. Nam June Pike yeah. level video effects yeah, yeah, and yeah. doing all this stuff. That's like true. I, for that yeah. yeah.
2: But I mean let's say that, you know, Rock videos are one step away from commercials because they're basically commercials for songs. And so it's like, okay, and every once in a while, somebody like Robert Longo will make, you know, you know, with Gretchen Bender made Bizarre Love Triangle and it's kind of a great movie. And Mm -hmm. Jonathan Demi did a New Order video that was kind of great. But I mean, the point is, the, the, the bigger point, I mean, about rock videos, though, is that the minute that you took an idea of let's call it spatial coherence for lack of a better term and just nullified it. And the minute that that made its way into movies and if I remember correctly, the first one was Electric Dreams, this dopey movie with Lenny Van Dolan and then the one that really did it was Mm Flashdance. Then you're, you know, something is entering into movies that was new. It's not, Jean-Luc Godard doing jump cuts and breathless. Right. It's not, you know, again, um, it's not a political. Alain life. Rene yeah. fracturing time or Orson Welles. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. something different, and it's it becomes more than those examples. It becomes a, I, I don't know if I would say a commercial application, but it becomes a. Um, a grammatical in, in the way that people, you know, when people are talking about grammar and they and they talk about good grammar and bad grammar, and there's something that mm-hmm. makes its way in that has been bad grammar, but then through use it becomes yeah. not bad grammar anymore. That's really what happened. Some people still ha- exactly, <laughs> yeah. You know, some people, you know, like Dave Kerr, still haven't gotten over it. You know, and mm-hmm. I mean, they, they they just,
1: you know, it's like
2: that's where the classical thing comes into play I Mm -hmm. think
1: and it's I'm always kind of put off when it's spoken about strictly in the kind of visual grammatical way and it's not tied to the life of the film the characters of the film the story of the film I think it's just it's just lazy criticism more than anything but it but but um but commonly so I mean we we tend to look at something we want to kind of break it down geometrically or talk about how many reverse shots there are and how many moving shots and I and that's there's value to that the boardwalk approach which, of course, but of course, he has kind of adapted that to something that's a little more um, tied to character and movement. but I feel that, with James Grey, to get back to James Gray, I feel like it's he makes it impossible to talk about his films that way, which I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there are some critics here and there who will only look at the technical side or the the mannerisms the, there, there are no mannerisms but the manner in which the films are made as opposed to the whole yeah. but nothing that he does is not tied to the story that he's telling and the characters that he's that, that he's that's, that's very screen. true <laughs> yeah although people try <laughs> 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 they
2: manage I mean you know and in the case of We Own the Night everybody fixated on the car chase obviously because it was such a right. virtuosic piece of filmmaking um, rain spattered windows mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's true because it's always about 100% clarity of the emotions
1: every single minute in the movie. There's there's no question about it. And I think people distrust that, right? They distrust transparency, mm-hmm. um, emotional, Christian knows emotional arcs, um, clarity of vision, like all these things that I talk about. It, you know, as 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 pluses, some people see as minuses. Yeah. Right? There has to be something that's obfuscating, something that's complicating my experience of it. And This is probably one of the reasons why James Gray does. T- and he, in the interview that he did with him, he talked about it. He 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 um he talks about how tiresome it is when people are imitating the French New Wave films of the sixties mm-hmm. when they're trying to do their own Godard films. Right? right? Mm. Um, that Still? came out of a very hmm?
0: oh, very much. Mm
1: people are still doing
0: yeah
1: well in
0: (laughs) can't you see more movies than i do you ought to know that
1: Um, i mean imitate is the wrong term maybe it's just the maybe it's even the the critical response right we there are films that um try to complicate your emotional attachment for sure i'm just talking
2: about the godard factor
1: yeah right Right. well Well, he used (laughs) used goddard as an example of you know he said that was done. He did it in the '60s. Right. Now we can move on. Like he loves talking, as, as you know yes. Ken, very well. He loves talking about you know the fantasy yeah. and how we yes, should give yeah. in to the fantasy as opposed <SSSSSSSsG> right. to um, yeah. block it, which is what he feels mm-hmm. like a lot of films do. And I think that's true. And I think it's definitely true the way people respond to films. And that's I true. I think there should be I don't know more openness, warmth, mm. and acceptance of that. The well Pursuit of Fantasy, which ties into also Percy Fawcett. So it's interesting how he, he he feels kind of like one with the character there.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a point that, you know, um, Brian Eno's mid. Mm-hmm. People are too obsessed with control. They don't pay enough attention to surrender. I think that the reason for that is because people got, you know, not everybody, but, you know, a certain, let's say, it became... You know, a certain segment of of the population, you know, college educated, you know, whatever people who are aesthetically inclined, people who are politically inclined, came to distrust the idea of surrender. And that still lingers to a certain degree. But I don't really understand how you could possibly create art without it. And I don't think anybody would really disagree if they got right down to it or else you'd wind up with a bunch of movies like Riddles of the Sphinx and, you know, crystal gazing. I mean, you know, Mm. it's just like... deadly experiences that are do very good jobs of breaking down the fourth wall. But I mean, you know, I guess that he does. Yes. He does talk about that a lot. He addresses it. And he, but in his movies, (laughs) he doubles down on it because I mean, you know, Um, in in something like this. And again, we can't really talk about it too much because it's, it hasn't come out yet and people should really be able to experience it for themselves. But I mean, you know, by the time this airs, it'll come out. Okay. But we don't want to talk about the ending of that movie. No. Oh my God. But but I mean, (laughs) I will talk about that. uh, Absolutely. Jaw dropping sequence where they meet the natives for the first time. And he says, everybody, okay, get out your, your your instrument and start playing, you know, soldiers of the queen. Yeah. And then the arrow hits his Bible Mm -hmm. and, there's a f- stream of, you know, memories of his family, the thing that he's left behind in pursuit of the sublime, and that's what the movie is. The sublimity is already there, mm-hmm. and what he's doing is he's going away from home in order to see <laughs> what he already has, right. which is a very, very moving thing, you know, and I do not it's something that people have made movies about before but never looked at it that squarely, and that particular scene was an invention on the set I don't think that it was in the script. There was something in the script about meeting, you know, the tribe, but there wasn't that or the way that he moves, goes in and then comes out. You know, talk about, you know, just bringing the audience under the spell of the, the emotional pull of the movie through the means of cinema. It's an incredible sequence.
1: Yeah. And, and the film overall has that sense of wonder and awe in the best possible sense. I know it's a term that, those are both terms that evoke distrust in some viewers Um, some um, I just I just think that there's a there's a certain approach to film that was born in academia Mm -hmm. that um, is all about creating these barriers and walls between the viewer and the and the film and um, this is interesting that you bring up that scene because that for me was the most Spielbergian sentiment in the film Mm. and I think that that's a term that would get a lot of people's hackles raised for many years but when Spielberg is at his very best he's communicating this in a completely unadulterated way where there's no division between the viewer and the screen um, so i think that it, maybe those two filmmakers have you know more in common at heart more in than, common one than would certainly say. one of them would <laughs> than one of them would um, want to admit yeah. yeah um but you know no at the end of two
2: lovers which is a film we can talk about since it's several years old. I mean, you know, when you're when you're that last shot, one th- of the best last shots that I. It's seen. a great last shot, but it's also the arc Which of the. Which
0: is what m- explain to people.
2: Well, I mean, we have to talk Refreshing. about how to, how it gets there. But I mean, you know, we're t- the, you know, it's, it's Joaquin Phoenix is you know a guy who lives at home with his parents, who's a very fragile, and you know an overgrown Jewish boy living in, you know, deepest Brooklyn who looks out his window and sees the blonde goddess of his dreams, you know, and then also has another, you know, just as compelling and beautiful woman, you know, from his part of the world played by that incredible actress, Vanessa Shaw. This is Gwyneth Paltrow and Vanessa Shaw. And then the fantasy of his life with, Gwyneth Paltrow builds to this incredible peak in the sequence where they meet on the roof and, you know, have a sexual encounter that's like something, you know, out of the scene, out of Bell Tower and Vertigo. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, he's going to give up his future with Vanessa Shaw, and then everything with Gwyneth Paltrow just completely falls apart. He goes... He has the ring that he's going to give to, you know, he retrieves it from the beach, right? Doesn't he, you know, he throws it and then he goes back and guts it. The ring that he's going to present to Gwyneth Paltrow, he just walks back into the party at his parents' house and presents it to Vanessa Shaw at the end. Mm -hmm. And you know that his life is probably gonna be very sweet to a certain degree, and then also filled with longing for what he doesn't have.
1: Right, a completely universal emotion, truth. Yeah, um, yeah. something
2: none of us have ever experienced. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, but no. But true. ties nicely into what you were saying about Lost City of Z, right? Yeah. Looking for th- the thing that you probably can't obtain and you, on some level, know you m- may never obtain. Yeah. Uh, you know, a quixotic ideal, perhaps, and then you find what you were looking for was kind of already there, but you have to sort of change your expectations and alter your ideas of what reality is and... Mm. Yeah, I, I mean I find um I mean The Immigrant is an interesting f- interesting for its differences from that, I think, cuz there's such mm-hmm. a completely open-ended finale to that movie. And that is thing that, things different for him. If I if unless I'm mistaken if you can recall, there's there's always a sense of um bittersweet closure in his films, but The Immigrant it's it, you know with that amazing last image really feels like it's opening out into unknown, which is perfect for the particular subject matter mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense for that film mm-hmm. but um i remember being really struck by the end of that thinking mm-hmm. that it was something new for him
0: mm-hmm. on that dreamy note <laughs> we can end it there but before we close as we always do it would be great if we could go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked i will start i was talking with nick Brickerton, and he we're sort of Chewing the fat about Robert De Niro's performance in *Raging Bull* and how funny it is, but then also how nuanced and little things he does with his mouthguard. So I rewatched that recently, and
2: you liked
1: it?
0: Yeah, big surprise. It was
1: pretty good. Yeah, it's you all right.
2: Know,
0: I'm gonna be real bold and say I enjoyed it, yeah. <laughs> and I mean that's a that's actually a film we could have probably talked about in the pro this discussion where mm-hmm. you know. You know, from your great chat with him, I learned that he decided to make it in black and white in part because uh, he hated how the red gloves looked, which I think is. A I think chat. Michael
2: Powell had a big problem with the red. Actually, ah. he was the one who convinced him.
0: There we go. Okay, well, that's that's not what the transcript says, but anyway. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, just how there are elements of that film that are very linear, very like traditional sports story, and then there are these. Every time I watch it, I can never get over how utterly batshit insane and wonderful and terrifying the boxing sequences are and not Mm. just and not just the one where the final fight between him and sugar ray the you know where he makes the pretty fighter not so pretty anymore all like what those fights convey and how they are you know composed and you know
1: each one has its own style totally i mean he saw the he saw them as he saw them as the as musical sequences. Yeah. Right? I mean, he, he compared the movie to Red Shoes more than any other film. Exactly. And I'm really glad you like it, Violet, because I needed convincing <laughs> yeah. that Raging Bull is great. Yeah, I've, so always, I've, been, I've, I've been on the fence about I, Raging Bull. I'm
0: I was, glad I could help you guys. I just want to help small films that maybe people yeah. haven't heard about.
2: Don't overcook it, you overcook it, it defeats its own purpose. Bring it over.
1: <laughs> you can't um, you can't <clears> put <throat> the dishes in the <laughs>
2: <laughs> Bring it over. It's like a piece of charcoal over here.
1: Bring it over. You me. call those carrots? Yeah. I got no choice. <laughs> <laughs> I got no choice.
2: Yeah. See a very fucking funny
1: bunch movie. of guineas you're always anyway we will not quote <laughs> um, the funniest part of the movie which is the joe pesci on the telephone oh my yeah. god yeah we'll not quote it oh yeah. my god
0: no also yeah let's can we have a moment to just like appreciate joe pesci who's like really criminally <laughs> underrated <Several laughs> Absolutely moments wonderful. to appreciate
1: joe yeah. pesci mm-hmm. and it just the other night not the film i was going to talk about but just the other night i was flipping through dv my cousin the vinny cousin was on vinny. I, uh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't turn it off i watched the rest of the film, there was an hour left, I could not turn it off. Where's his yeah. retrospective? Good question.
2: I've only seen one film. I mean, I, I can't, I've seen some newer films that I, you know, zip, zip. a couple a couple newer films, but I've only seen, you know, the only film that I've seen, because I'm, I'm, you know, editing my own film, is um, Barry Lyndon, which I oh, saw the other yes. night at, in uh, Deepest Brooklyn with a live orchestra. Let's just say that it wasn't, well, you know, it was 45 minutes late. It's a oh. three-hour movie. It was Saturday Jesus. night, whatever. But And it was in the middle of Midwood, you know, at the King's Theater, which is <sighs> beautiful. And it was also a 2K scan, oh. you know. It was, you know, And it was a little, maybe the screen was a trifle small for the size of the theater. A great movie is a great movie. And yes. it wouldn't be my first choice for a live orchestra movie. It's an odd thing because what you're doing is destroying the mix. Right. By using a version of the movie that has you know just dialogue and effects tracks and then you know you do your own music and so also i think it runs the risk of dialogue and effects going out of sync yeah um etc but you know having said that i mean it's a movie that i went to see it with loved ones some of them know it very well and you know My younger son, it's a film he's been begging me to see again for years and he saw it again he's like, well, you know, nothing wrong with that movie. I mean, you know, it's, 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 um, and I must say that as well as I know the movie and I've seen it under all different kinds of circumstances, I saw it when it came out, you know, seen it again and again, the very end of the movie, there's the freeze frame of him getting into the carriage, then you're left with her paying bills and mm-hmm. in, under the eyes of Leon Vitale who, you know, as Lord Boeington, and um, Philip Stone who played the butler in The Shining as the accountant and that actor who plays Reverend Runt who's actually in The Lost City of yes. Z. He's, yes. he's got a... One um, of the
0: great undersung he, character actors. He's, he's in yeah. all of Kenneth, Ken Russell's films.
2: Yes. And he's... And a, Murray Melvin, right? Yes. And he's in his 90s now. And so... You know the annual bill for Redmond Barry comes in, and you know she looks at it and pauses, and then Leon Vitale looks at her, and then you know she she Marissa Baranson, you know, and passes it on, and that's the end of the movie, paying bills, and um, I have to say that it's a an ending that I've always found a little, I've I've always liked it and admired it. This time, it really, for some reason, I don't know why, it just really had a very emotional effect on me.
1: Yeah, I th- I think the last time I watched that film in a theater, I had the same response to the end. I I've always loved that film and I always thought it was an interesting choice. And I remember being kind of baffled by it when I saw it as a child. The first time I saw that film, I thought, "What kind of a way? Of, where's where's my uh, where's my landscape shot?" <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, You've
0: only had like three hundred throughout the movie that were like fucking amazing. Yeah. You're greedy.
1: <clears throat> but yeah, it's it's an in, the the two films you just named are insane masterpieces, and the film I'm about you to mention just said grandpa. <laughs> That's what Nick Pinkerton said the last time we did one of these things.
2: <laughs> yes, I just saw Dirty Grandpa, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I okay.
1: did watch Dirty Grandpa for the first time, but that is not yep. uh, what I was going to talk about. I actually watched a much smaller film, <laughs> Steve James' new film, Abacus, Small Enough to Jail, mm-hmm. which was terrific. And uh it's a really just, good movie. Yeah, just mm-hmm. very briefly. I think the film's coming out theatrically in a few weeks, mm-hmm. finally. Very briefly, it's um, about this small family-owned bank in Chinatown and they were kind of used as a scapegoat or at least easy enough to use as a scapegoat for the mortgage crisis. Forget kind of. Definitely used as a scapegoat. <laughs> they were the only bank prosecuted and they're this tiny family owned business and what I really liked about this film and I guess I don't know why I didn't expect it because it is Steve James and he makes very interesting and sometimes beautiful films um, is that this is an obviously incendiary topic. It's a very upsetting Political topic, um, but this movie is about the people. This is about this family. You just get to know this family. This these uh, the the daughters who run this operation. The the father who's owned the business for many many years is in his 80s now, and it's basically run by his three or maybe four daughters. Maybe three but of them on are three. Screen a lot. Three daughters. Yeah.
2: But well. One of them is involved with the bank. Two of them, one of them worked
1: in the Manhattan Prosecutor's Office, you know, she, right. and she resigned and That's went right. to work on the case. She and resigned.
2: Another one, I think, was a lawyer as well.
1: I just felt privileged to get to, to know these people and to kind of watch how they were mistreated mm-hmm. by the press and by the law um, was was um, edifying and, and um, moving. So mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend that film. We
2: showed the film in the festival, New York Film Festival last year and... They all came and they all, you know, came as a, you know, and and they stand proudly together. And it was a great thing to share the stage with them. And the mother, as she is in the movie, she's like, okay, you know, maybe it's time for the, you know, my husband should stop talking so much and let the daughters talk. (laughs) You know, he talks too much, you know, that kind of thing. was There's a lot of that in the film. Yeah, sure.
1: just get to know these people. And it's all about, there's this whole little bit about a sandwich. Yeah. And I was just—I felt so lucky to be able to see that scene, like just Mm -hmm. talking about a sandwich order, and is it too—is the sandwich too dry, too much for the father? The way that they look out for him, the way they look out for each other. I think dad needs to go home. He looks tired, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, it's. It just brings the whole horrible event home on a very personal level.
0: Well. Thank you both so much for coming.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Oatmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.